Hello and welcome to Foundation, the official podcast from Apple TV+. I'm your host, Jason Concepcion, and this is your guide to the galaxy. From Trantor to Terminus and hundreds of millions of other worlds, space is a big place. We aim to make it smaller and brighter and add some context to everything you see on the show. Each week, I'm recapping and breaking apart every episode of season two with Foundation showrunner and executive producer David S. Goyer. David? Hello. Episode eight. The title of this episode is The Last Empress, and we're joined by the director of this episode, Roxanne Dawson. Hi, it's good to be here. It's great to have you. Uh, Quick recap, okay, this episode uh, was written by Liz Pong and Addie Roy Manis and Bob Ultra. We started on Ignis, where Tellum has trapped Gale and Salvor in mental prisons that are directly attuned to whatever the frequency their mind resonates on. There's something you really don't want me to see. Salvor has discovered the missing Prime Radiant, hiding as a paperweight or a dish of some kind. A trivet. A trivet. A trivet. As a trivet. And she realizes, aha, this is my way out. My mind sort of snuck in through the back door. She uses it to uh, quantum project into the vault on Terminus. And uh, Dr. Selden's mind is absolutely blown. A left hand, blissfully unaware of what the right hand is doing. Fuck! I'm the left hand. He teaches her how to use math to escape from the uh, mental prison. And she returns the favor by telling him the name of Hober Mallow. Left hand doesn't get to put its thumb on the scale. What's the point in having a thumb? Meanwhile, in Gail's prison, Tellum reveals that she has been jumping between bodies for centuries, and guess whose body is next? You can't fight me anymore, Gail. The tuning plates are aligning us. <laughs> On Trantor, Rue is doing some uh, arguably irresponsible move-making, burgling Demarzel's quarters, telling Dusk that she can get her memory back, and that she remembers everything from their last dalliance together. I thought we trusted one another. No. You thought I trusted you. Soon they both realize that Dusk has uh, some sort of pre-programmed response teed up for whenever the subject of Demerzel comes up. She will always be here, as she always has been. Rue and Dusk find a hidden doorway in the Mural of Souls, but before they could really look into it further, they have to go off to the state execution of Polly and Constant. Day is orchestrating the execution like a product launch, and he's streaming it broadband across the galaxy. They have the goal to send their envoys here, willing vessels of Selden's insolence. But before the heads can roll, there's an explosion. As a whisper ship jumps into view, it's Hobermallow. He's here. The heading's being canceled. He's able to save Constant. We lose Becky in the process. R.I.P. Becky. Polly gets left behind. Day is furious about everything that just happened. This is an act of war. Surely he then makes the questionable decision to head to Terminus and confront the Foundation. That planet belongs to us. I'm going! Dusk and Rue return to the hidden doorway in the mural and discover an old prison chamber where they're greeted by the image of Cleon I. You were looking for answers. I think we may find them here. On the spirit rising, Hober and Constant take advantage of some downtime to uh, have sex. Then take off your trousers. Yeah, okay. But they're soon captured by Bel Rios and the Imperial Fleet. Great timing. And in our last scene, uh, while day heads to Terminus, Dawn and Dusk are both realizing that Demerzel is Cleon I's, quote, forever empress. Demerzel is Cleon's only true heir. Whoa! I just can't believe that's all one episode. No, I know. Every time. <laughs> I know. It's It's wild. I can't wait to talk more about how these events are intersecting. 
But first, Roxanne, let's, let's introduce you to folks. How, how'd you become involved with the show? You also directed some episodes in season one and another mm-hmm. one this season. How did you come to be part of the foundation crew? Really, I'm a bit of an outsider. I mean, I, I uh, got the script and I went, holy moly, this is amazing. I just really fell in love with what the script was saying and the philosophical bends and the questions and the probing into human nature and where it can lead you. Just all those things really uh, spoke to me. And I said, I want to be a part of this, you know, and I'm very grateful that I have been. Roxanne ended up directing the biggest episodes in season one, eight and nine, in just in terms of scope. And then in season two, eight and definitely nine are the biggest in terms of scope. So it's funny that you end up getting saddled with these just sort of massive things that frankly, <laughs> like the the sort of execution product launch one that you did, that you directed masterfully. And we can, we can talk about that you did in the Canary Islands. I, I just remember I was on set for a couple of those days and just going, thank God I'm not directing this. Thank God I'm not directing because <laughs> it's just so complicated. Let's talk about that because it feels as if that must be a tremendous undertaking to not just the specific scene you're talking about, but the fact that you're shooting in two locations in two countries. How do you, how does this work logistically? I mean, logistically, it's it's a bit of a nightmare, actually. And the fact that we can all make it work is a testament to everybody working on the show. You know, to be shooting parts of it in Spain and on the different islands and then in Prague. But that's the thing that also is part of giving the show scope to get so many different kinds of locations, different kinds of architecture. You really can sense that the show is rooted in a kind of history and the backdrops for these scenes are amazing. One of the things that I also love about working with Roxanne is sometimes I've had the experience with other directors where, you know, there's like a key moment that's just like where you really needed a close-up or a push-in on a key moment. I think because you've directed so much, but also because you've acted, there's never a moment that's missing. It's like the camera always pushes in at exactly the right time. There's always like the exact right close-up. You just have such a great sense of story and where to put the camera in order to enhance that story. Well, thank you. That's so sweet. Um, but, you know, it's so in, it's interesting because I think I began in the theater and I began as an actor in the theater working with playwrights. And one of the things I loved was just sort of working hand in hand with the playwrights and really discussing, you know, what was happening in every moment. And um, I think ultimately that's, that's our job as a director's story. I wonder if you could, we heard David mention a little bit of your background, your longtime director, very storied, started as an actor. You're in 170 or something episodes of Star Trek Voyager, which is an incredible number. And now you're working on Foundation, which is like 10 mini movies per season. Do you ever reflect on the changes in television that, that have happened over the course of your career? Oh, massively, even the seven years that I was on Voyager, technology was changing right in front of us. And I was very much aware of it when we started Star Trek Voyager. You know, we would walk around with these things called PADDs and we would talk to people and see pictures of people like we do on FaceTime now, you know, and that didn't exist at the time. That was future technology. And I still remember the last, one of the last weeks we were working together, all the actors sitting around a table and we had our PADDs and we were doing all this stuff. And then somebody says, cut. And everybody puts their PADDs down and picks up their little iPhones. That didn't exist when 
Star Trek Voyager started. And it was just so weird to look around the table and say, oh my God, we're actually living this crazy technology boom. And I'm right in the middle of it and I can feel it. Well, let's dive into the episode. It strikes me that the theme of this episode to me was really acts of war. This is the opening salvos of the hot war between Foundation and Empire. And we start with Rue poking around in Demerzel's quarters. I mean, I would imagine this is a reckless move by Rue. What is Rue thinking here? It's interesting that Rue warns Sereth about being careful, and yeah. yet Rue takes certain risks herself. I think that she believes that her relationship with Dusk is a kind of shield. In other words, she can get away with more than one would think, and that she feels that she is more in control, whereas Sarah feels impulsive and is, you know, running after love and this and that. Uh, Rue has a very, or she feels, she's got her head screwed on right. She'll be the victor. Demoiselle is the closest Empire has to family. Where did she come from, Dusk? She will always be here, as she always has been. The time for ambiguity has passed, old friend. Demarcel is a robot. The last surviving robot in the galaxy, and yet... She sits as handmaiden to Empire. What is her real purpose? We spend some more time in Demerzel's quarters. Tell us about bringing a, a robot's personal quarters to life. What does she do in there, in her downtime? <laughs> I mean, we'd established it in season one. Mm-hmm. And like, there's a harp in there. That's right. Uh, which you use. Yes. Um, because Props just found this old harp and we thought, oh, that's cool. But like, why does Demerzel have harp in there? <laughs> but it's also interesting that she doesn't have, there is no bed in there. Mm. And there isn't even like a, like a stand or a frame that she would like, like I imagine she just goes in there and she sits in front of her vanity with perfect posture and goes to sleep or whatever robot sleep is. Or maybe she never does. Maybe she never does. Uh, exactly. But I also love the idea that the, you know, it's a, ro- it's a robot, so she doesn't need a vanity. She needs to fix herself sometimes, but she doesn't necessarily need to fix herself in this feminine way. In the back of my mind, I, I always thought the reason why they did that was because it was a way of introducing young Cleons to this sort of maternal mm. aspect of her mm. being a robot and getting them comfortable with her being a robot. Like she didn't have to have all these pretty tools and a vanity, but that that was part of the way that they sort of indoctrinate the Cleons. Uh, that, that was my, my reasoning. Uh, you mentioned the execution sequence or attempted execution sequence and how complicated it was. What was it about that scene that made it so difficult to, to put together? Well, we had to connect with a lot of people that uh, would be affected by the execution. Uh, from back home, observing it live, mm. the reason that it was done live, I mean, it has to do with days, obviously, his ego and his needing to send a message out. Like, I think every action says something about the characters. Even Polly there, when he realizes, when he feels that, you know, he got constant into the situation and he says, I'm sorry. And I think it's interesting. They never have a chance during the execution to feel betrayed by Harry, but yet he did betray them. He sent them into the situation where this was most assuredly going to be the thing that 
that happened, yeah, yeah. you know? So there are just so many levels. And on top of that, there was a grand execution. Mm. So I think it's making sure that that grand execution for show also has all of the other levels on why it's reaching certain people in certain ways and affecting how they in turn will respond and further the story. And if you think about it, just, just on the execution veranda, there's at least 10 characters that you have to get like mediums and close-ups on, you know, and, <laughs> and, and various coverage and eyelines on. And then you've got at least 15 people that you're intercutting throughout all of this. And that's that's just a lot. And then you've got explosions yeah. and stunts and, and wire Becky. pulls. And, <laughs> and then you've got a digital creature running around that isn't really there. Um, and a whisper ship that, yeah. that sends a bomb through the crowd and bodies flying. And But that was so much fun, actually. <laughs> we we filmed this at the Opera House in, in Ten- oh. Tenerife, which is beautiful. The ocean is actually right out there. But in visual effects, we made it look like it was a couple of thousand feet in the air. And I have to say, I at first, I did not see the advantage to shooting there. It felt like one big parking lot to me, and I just, I couldn't see it. And I think we began then to construct the set and then began to give it shape. And slowly I began to say, yeah, this is the place that it should be, and then imagining it with visual effects and everything. Mm. But at first, it felt very open and like there's nowhere to hide. Right. You know what I mean? It was just, it's very interesting progression. The action scene that interrupts the execution is quite exciting. How do you plan for something like that coming at the tail end of this already extensive and, as you mentioned, complicated scene? How do you block it out? How do you get ready for something like that? Yeah, I mean, as you know, it's storyboarding. Storyboards, But also, yeah, it's just sitting down with everybody involved and realizing the correct order in which to shoot. And a lot of times... We also were dealing with a very open space and we were chasing the sun. So the sun was a very important factor in terms of how we shot everybody and knowing we were shooting certain people in the morning and could only deal with this in the afternoon and constantly searching for the sun to be in the right place as we really did have no protection there. So that was a challenge. When you do a big scene like that, it's almost like this battle plan. Mm -hmm. And and the state, the order that you are going to shoot things becomes really important and can make the difference between success or failure in a scene because it's all about What's the smartest, most efficient way to order everything and, you know, shoot one direction first. Mm. And then when you have to turn, we call it turning around, then there's all of these people and tents and makeup chairs and all these things. (laughs) Like 300 people then need, in all their crap, need to go to the other side behind the camera. (laughs) And that can take an hour. And so you hope that you don't have to do that twice Mm -hmm. within a day. But sometimes you do because of the sun. There are just so many factors. The bigger the scene is, the more factors there are. We send two more to meet their fate. Polyverisov, the high cleric of the Church of Selden. And Constant, Thespin daughter of those who so aggrieved us. Who dies first? The cleric or the girl? This season and this episode balance so many tones just in individual scenes even. I'm, you know, thinking of this execution and Day's performance. You know, he is scary, but also kind of funny in how pompous he is. And then you have got this, like, really visceral and exciting action scenes, and you've got the sadness of, you know, everyone on Terminus. How do you balance all of these things and make sure one tone doesn't override the others? Yeah, I know. It's a super good point, and it's definitely something that I think we as directors and as writers 
look at all the time in terms of finding that balance. But if you think about people and how multifaceted mm-hmm. we are, I mean, especially people who rise to the level of dictators are very multifaceted in terms of how they woo people to be near them and and what their sense of humor appears to be and then how they can turn on a dime. It's also a credit. I mean, Lee... Oh, so good. I I really do think he's one of the greatest actors of this generation. And I mean, you see that scene, which is highly performative, Mm -hmm. intentionally so. And he's really cruel when he sort of tosses it out to Sarath about yeah. she'll Sarath choose in that line. Who will go first. Yeah, <laughs> who will go first. And he mentions the girl and is he talking about Sarath or is he talking about Constant? But then he's got this amazing scene with Polly in the shuttle. Oh, yeah. Where he's so quiet. And even as an emperor, he sort of gets down on Polly's level and he's kind of calm. And Polly has that moment where he says, you know, violence is the last refuge of the incompetent. And he says, oh, yeah, you're probably right about that. And I, I just love that he's... Day, and but as embodied by Lee, is sort of capable of both those temperatures and his performance because it's he's like a dictator, but he's also weirdly sometimes self-aware. He mm-hmm. sort of goes in and out of it, you know? Yeah. I have faith in foundation. Oh, watch the rigor melt like candy. See, Polly, you think you've just taken on the trappings of religion. But once you start kneeling and praying, it's hard to get back to standing and thinking. That moment on the Rubicon is really great because I think Day makes an actual good point in that conversation mm. when he says pretending to be a religion can become a religion yeah. at a certain point. And isn't yeah. that what happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we look, even going back to blade right when i was like doing my first sort of villainy villain i was like i always like my villains and i and i don't think day's a villain i think he's an antagonist which is a little different but i always like my villains or antagonists to make good points day makes a ton of great points throughout the show and a lot of the things that people are accusing him of harry or selden are culpable of the exact same thing let's go to uh Cermak and Selden, uh, that scene was really riveting and really sad. You could feel the scales just falling away from Cermak's eyes in this moment as he realizes, oh, are we all just pawns in this? We are just interchangeable pieces uh, for Harry? He tries to get an exclamation from Dr. Selden, but doesn't get too much. How did you approach this scene? As the sun was going down. <laughs> Didn't think you'd come out. I felt I owed you as much. I watched the broad beam from Trantor. Is she alive? I don't know. A whole lot of people have dedicated their lives to pretending you know everything. I sat her on my knee the moment she started thinking about it, and I said, choose any job on Terminus, choose my job, choose any job, just promise me. Just promise me you won't choose the robes. We had Oliver Chris, who's a great actor, and he had actually auditioned for Day uh-huh. uh, in season one. I didn't know that. And came very close to getting he would Day. Been great. And I w- yeah. and I wanted to cast him in something. And this particular role wasn't as large, but he said, "I still want to do something in Foundation." And I said, "Well, what about if you play this, and we'll write the role up a little?" So we we wrote some more scenes for him, and I said, "Okay, let's write a scene between Doctor Selden and Cermak. and." It's also a very classically, it feels like a very, like a scene that would have happened in the Old Testament. 
mm-hmm. uh, is sort of the way we approach it. Yeah, Job asking God, why have you, exactly. why have you placed all these burdens upon me? Exactly. And it was this beautiful two-hander, and then we were over budget. Yeah, and so it really was added on to a day that was already very full. And we were at the point where we were going to lose the sun, and we had maybe maybe 90 minutes, 90 minutes. to get wow. over there. And that's not a short scene. It's not a short scene. And I have to say, one of the reasons that we were able to do that scene is that Jared was so unbelievably gracious. He knew that it was, in a way, a harder emotional scene for his acting partner than it was for him. And he said, let him go first, let him get all the coverage, you know, the sun was going down, we barely had enough to cover Jared, and then he brought his A-game. But there was this wonderful relationship between the two of them of giving and literally understanding what the obstacles were for us to get that scene. And it was just, it was like such a joy to get it in the can. And I actually didn't know if the last couple of shots that we had were, if we had enough light. They were right on, they were the, right right on, on the, the edge. edge of like, <laughs> this isn't usable. Yeah. There's too much grain. Yeah. The thing I love about that scene is, you know, one, the emotion of, of Sir Mac and the intense, crushing disappointment in the prophet, but also Selden attempting to be warm and I think succeeding kind of. But also, he also can't help but just, like, lay out the entire psychohistory thing again. Hey, you know, individuals, it can't account for the individuals. Sorry yeah, about it. They're not <laughs> important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's pure, pure Dr. Selden. How much of uh, sending Constant and Polly there was this thought of, you know, the foundation could use martyrs, right? I, I think that was 100% mm-hmm. the thought. I mean, it was use martyrs and also using them to provoke day. And I think Selden had every expectation that they would be killed. It's a lot of, you know, the means to justify the end. Yeah. Oof. Let's go to um to Ignis, where Tellum is in the midst of doing her uh, mind transference procedure. What a performance by Rachel House, who's mesmerizing in this episode as mm-hmm. Tellum. Roxanne, what was it like working with her? Oh, amazing. Just such a phenomenal presence. Yeah, love her. Love her. She's so cool. Like, you just want to hang out with her. Yeah. (laughs) And she she gives so much humanity to the role, and she sounds so reasonable, and she's Mm. funny throughout the season. But she's, I would argue, she's a villain. Like, she's evil, you know? Mm. I mean, she's been hopping from body to body to body, taking the body of children and living forever. She's like a vampire. Yeah. She's like a psychic vampire. And you can understand why people fall in love with her and yeah. why they are wooed by her presence. She's charismatic. She's yes. got this weird Jim Jones thing going on. And yeah. and I like that when we introduce her in the season, she sort of is cards up at first. Like she says, I'm going to yeah. destroy the Prime Radiant when the first time you meet her. But you're like, is she bad? Is she good? No, no, oh, no, no, she's really bad. You know, and, and it's just <laughs> like, it's. I, I don't know, she was a delight to work with. To your conversation about her being a villain... She does seem so reasonable. But when she lays out what she's been doing, there's no way to square what she has been presenting herself as previously with this. There's no way to make this fit into any kind of moral code. You're stealing the bodies of, like, kids and innocent people. Yeah, yeah. And she's doing it. I mean, at least what Harry is doing, or even arguably what Day is doing, right, is he's running a galaxy. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and Harry's ostensibly trying to save humanity. She's just doing it because she just wants to live forever and she doesn't want to die. <laughs> She's afraid of death and yeah. admittedly And, so means, and that's like, the only reason. One of the things she says is that it was her that influenced Gail to leave Synax in season one. Is was wondering, is she lying? Is that a lie? Is that true? I'm smiling because that led to many discussions, that very particular thing on on the set. And we ended up a little bit open-ended. I know you have kind of a strong um, opinion or on that. No, but... no, no, I don't know. <laughs> I, which is what's I don't cool. Know. Yeah, that is, which yeah. is what's cool. She yeah. says she says it, and maybe it's true, or maybe it's not. And if it's true, that's kind of mind-boggling. But I think I'm comfortable sometimes with laying certain things out where we're not 100% mm. sure whether it's true or not or what really happened. You know, we had a debate in the writer's room and I'm not even sure I know. Does it ma- does it change things? I, well, you know, it's interesting. I lean that it's a lie. So did Lou. <laughs> My sense from Tellum is that she is, of course, incredibly powerful, but she's also been presenting herself as more powerful than she is at certain times. Yes. And I feel like across the galaxy, you influence this one thing. Come on, come on, Tellum. You may be right, but she has, she's, I definitely believe she's influenced people on other planets. Yes. I believe Like that. she's that powerful. That. So I don't know, man, you know. And yet she dissolves in front of the mule. Yeah. You know, it's very, very interesting. There's definitely a limit. Um, let's go to Dr. Selden, Salvor, and Hober Mallow. First of all, the reveal that this is how Dr. Selden finds out about Hober Mallow is, uh, talk about that. Well, you had asked this in yeah. the earlier podcast, yeah, that's right. right? And hopefully the reveal was satisfying for you. Yes. <laughs> because the, I, I probably shouldn't say this, but when we started out episode two and the name Hober Mallow shows up, I didn't know how it got there. Uh, and that's a very bold, wow. like, you know, and I, and I come from the James Cameron school of like, that's a cool thing right towards it and we'll figure it out. And we were like three more episodes in and the writers could not figure it out. And I, I remember I was walking my dogs one morning and I was like, I fucking got it. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I texted it to myself. And then we had the writer's room that day. And I said, this is how. And they were like, you motherfucker. Like, that's really good. That's really good. But I was like, it just popped into my head one day. Because it's a fun scene between Selber mm-hmm. and Selden. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Like, they like each other. And this Selden knows Selber. This is yeah. the Selden that met Selber. 138 years ago. And I think like he's a little fond of her. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that Salver has a relationship with this Harry that Gail doesn't. And so that's really interesting. And so it's a really fun scene. It's a really fun scene watching Selden figure it out just from like really quickly. He's like, oh, but that would make me the left hand. Oh my God. And back and forth and back and forth. And that's really fun. And then I just thought it would be so lovely if Selden is the one that helps Salver get out and free Gail and free the other Harry inadvertently, but that Selver also trips up and cheats and gives Selden this name, which also saves the foundation, but will have other ramifications in future seasons. Mm. Like like everything we do, it's like the story doesn't just end there. The fact that she, Selver said that, and he decided to write that name, that's not the end of that 
storyline. Uh, like there's going to be more dominoes that are going to fall from that little event. Hober Mallow. Hmm? Hober Mallow. According to Gale, he's going to pierce the Empire's hide. You shouldn't have told me that. I can't make you use it. So I, I would imagine that our audience, their brains were kind of breaking. Is it that time in the vault is different or did this happen at a different time outside the vault? Time inside the vault is different, yeah. but my intention with episode eight is to tell you that the Salver Gale Harry storyline is actually happening a couple weeks in advance. Mm -hmm. And so their episode eight coincides with episode two of what's happening on Terminus. And so we were sort of being a little cheeky by not letting the audience catch up to that until hopefully episode eight. <laughs> uh, did you get it? Yes. Very brain twisty, especially with all the other brain twisting that is happening in this episode. What I love about it, playing with sort of time and space, is to find out after the fact what caused something that you've seen already. Right. Yeah. That was confusing and you didn't know where, why it's happening, what it's going to lead to. And then you go back and explain it. And to me, I love those mind twisting well, yeah. things. Yeah. <laughs> and, and actually, when you understand what Salver did... It's yeah. actually not that confusing. Right. It's actually very, just said, hey, very straightforward. It said, yeah. hey, dude, this guy's going to be really important. Yeah. You might want to tell everyone. And then he was like, <laughs> and he didn't get it through psychohistory. And they was like, okay, I guess I'm going to. Yeah. <laughs> there are going to be ramifications. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> when we shot going into the, the actual prime radiant and kind of that mirrored room, yeah. that was all practical. Oh, wow. And um, most of it, if not all of it, was done in camera, actually. Almost all of it. Yeah. Um, as they moved through these two-way mirrors, we were able to adjust light that would come up and down and be able to reveal things and uh, repetitions and patterns. And we actually worked on a set that was quite small, but had to give it scope and had to make it feel like you were at the center of the prime radiant so that the lights were constantly moving and you just felt like you were in a, a shimmering center of something that was just like almost alive. And it allowed us the kind of freedom to also do a lot of things that were not necessarily logical or expected. Right, And that also just speaks to the idea that everything has its implications. In other words, every everything that you say and do will have a trajectory that moves way beyond from, from that initial statement or that, or that piece of information that is revealed. It's also very theatrical, like in the classical yeah. sense. Yeah. It's fun when you have some scenes like that where you have creative license to just really, oh, really go crazy. It's such a gift. It is so much fun. You know, you can get there and just kind of use your imagination. And yeah, it's great. We have to talk about Salvor's rediscovery of the Prime Radiant uh, hiding as a trivet, a serving dish. I have my interpretation of how this happened, and it involves her own powers and something like a post-hypnotic suggestion. But how did she rediscover that she knew where it was? Harry gave her a clue. Yeah. Well, yeah, Harry, Harry gave her a clue, but this is also really tricky because you notice, I think it's in episode six in the flashback, you see a prototype of the prime radiant fold up mm -hmm. like it's in a flattened state it's on harry's desk in the helicon backstory it unfolds so we're telling the audience a couple episodes earlier this thing can also unfold and then hopefully they forget about it right and then in six before the flashback 
Harry says to Salver, go out to the Prime Radiant. It's hidden. It won't look like it does, but like it's it in does, plain sight. But it's in plain sight, or basically yeah. he says that. And then there's at least two scenes where it is, if you go, if viewers go back, it is in plain sight. And one of them is when Tellum's in the beggars talking to Gail, it's there in front of them. Like, like literally it's like, you know, two feet away from Tellum the whole time in a couple of shots. And so we played fair with the audience, but we really were hiding things. And so what the audience is to infer from that is that after the moment, right before Harry left in six, when he says to Salver, you know, find the radiant, protect and protect Gale, that Salver went onto the beggar, found it, flattened it and put it in the lining of her coat. And so that moment that she's going back to it is actually something she did earlier and she's had it on her, but it's, it's tricky, but we were really particular about like Alex Grace, who did episode six. I was really particular about you got to get a couple of these shots when Gail and Tom are talking with this flattened prime radiant is sort of in the foreground out of focus. And he was sort of like, why? And I was like, just, just trust me. But like, I promise you it'll, it'll work. It, it was, it was tricky. And then how did how does you she how does she shield that information from Tellum's grasp from the mentalics probing around? I mean, it's it's hard. It went like that's well, she when she forgot herself that she had it. Yes, exactly. Exactly. She had no idea about it as well. Exactly. And part of me wonders whether Gail didn't help her forget that. You know, because mm. there's that scene in Seven where Gail's like, "You need to hide your thoughts, mm-hmm. and you need to think really carefully." You know mm-hmm. about what you're saying and what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So. It's tricky because we're on an enclave of mind readers, you know. And some of that idea, I remember getting, there's a great science fiction author named Alfred Bester who wrote a classic science fiction story called The Demolished Man about a future where a lot of people uh, have psychic abilities, particularly the cops, and a murderer commits a murder and has to shield his thoughts from the psychic cops. And he has to come up with like a like an earworm that he says mm-hmm. in his head over and over again. And so there was a little bit of that going on in the back of my head when we were dealing with the Ignis stuff. Let's go to Trantor. Day is just an amazing figure in this episode. As he's leaving, much to the consternation of everybody that is trying to advise him what to do, he's going against the advice of Demerzel, of Dusk, of Dawn, of everyone. It's interesting to me that he doesn't suspect that Sarath and Dawn have some sort of spark going. I just chalk it up to arrogance, but why why does he not notice this? Arrogance? I think so. Yeah. I, think it, I think it's arrogance. <laughs> he thinks he's so much cooler than Dawn that there's just no way. But what's the benefit there? I mean, yeah. He's, yeah. he's the main dude, you know? Yeah. It's like, I, I think he just can't imagine it. Um, arrogance seems to me the exact same inspiration for this trip to Terminus. I'm just going to go and against... Mm-hmm everyone's better judgment, show you how it's really done. I'm just going to take all of the Empire's property back, one fell swoop, uh, with as little violence as necessary, and it's going to shock you. That's really his plan, right? Yep. His plan is to basically prove everybody wrong. Yeah. If they say white, he says black. If they say black, he says white. I mean, he's just, (laughs) you feel him. If they had said, go to Terminus, he would, no, I'll be the one who doesn't go to Terminus. Yeah, exactly. There's just, you know, that part of him. Exactly. I will look the ghost of Selden in the eye, and I will reclaim what is ours. You will have a planet as a wedding gift. Um, speaking of 
hiding in plain sight. It, Demerzel's been hiding in plain sight for now centuries. Yeah. Talk to us about how she could have, I mean, obviously the uh, memory erasion and editing, it would help, but she must be doing a fantastic job that no one has ever wondered what her role is here and how can she continue to be here after all these years? Well, the, the interesting reveal, right, is that the Cleons seem to be as programmed yeah. as she is, possibly even more so. She's such a complex character because you feel so much empathy for her. But it's like, is she a villain? Is she mm-hmm. the Terminator? Is she a victim? Is Like, what is she? Also, some people believe that she might also be a clone and part of the same, right. mm-hmm. you know, and therefore it doesn't, it seems justified that she's staying the same age. And, you know, well, that's she, certainly what the public believe. The public yeah. believe yeah. that, yeah. which is how she can get away with the hiding in plain sight. I love that the conclusion at the end of the episode between Rue and Dusk and Sarath and Dawn is they have this this awareness of like, oh my God, we have so much less agency than we thought right. we had. And just the fact that we're, we pulled this thread means we might be dead now, you know? Uh, and that was part of the sort of palace intrigue aspect of the season that this sort of dawning horror on the part of the Cleons, which Day is unaware of mm. this aspect of it yet, that they're really just puppets. Mm. Don says an incredible line, Demarzel is Cleon's only true heir, his forever empress. Yep. Or prisoner? I mean, I, f- I find myself wondering as I watch her and, and seeing what she has been through in her true <laughs> relationship to Empire. She is really kind of also a prisoner, as powerful as she is, isn't she? You know, this is episode eight, so maybe we'll learn more about that next episode. We'll see. And can I plug the Forever Empress herself who will be with us in next week's episode, Laura Beeren, who plays Demarcel. Well... I know you know what comes next, David, but for uh, Roxanne, what comes next is building the foundation, our light speed round of questions. Show you one. You're supposed to be the one. Why do you put her in the park? You want to be in control? You know nothing! So, Hobart jumps right into a crowd of people. Is it the shockwave that sends out the explosion, or is it armaments? Is it bombs and stuff? Shockwave. Yep. Um, how do they project these broadcasts across the galaxy? Like, what is the mechanism? Uh, what do we say? Tight beam? <laughs> well, there's, there's, there's needle cast, which is like narrow beam. And then I, there's another phrase that we use at one. It's, a, it's like space Wi-Fi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you discuss what else they use it for? Is it only executions? Are there sports? Are there imperial no, pronouncements? No, no, I think this is, yeah, I think this is like for sports and for like the Galactic Olympics mm-hmm. and, and for, for announcements. Fireside that, addresses. Yeah. Yeah. This is like the public address system across the galaxy. Yeah. We learned on a previous podcast episode from VFX supervisor Chris McLean that Becky is a vegetarian. Bishop's Claws are vegetarians. Does that mean that she wouldn't have eaten day? She would just have torn him apart? Yeah, I don't think he's worthy of her eating him. I don't think he has any nutritional value for her. She just didn't like him. Yeah. (laughs) Who's Demarzel's favorite Cleon of the active Cleons right now? Does she have, does she prefer any of them to, to any of the others? Hmm. It seems like she's always closest to Dawn, but, you know, you could argue based on what she's done this season, being intimate with Day, but I think that's artifice. Like, yeah. I don't think that's 
something that she particularly enjoys. I think she likes them when they're kids and she is fond of them when they're really old. That's my mm-hmm. my take. Well, thanks so much for joining us, David and Roxanne. Oh, gosh, what a pleasure. Thank you. Next week, as mentioned, we'll be joined by the Forever Empress, Laura Byrne. Thanks for listening to Foundation, the official podcast. Be sure to follow on Apple Podcasts to get the next episode in your feed and watch Foundation on Apple TV Plus, where available. This is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Gabrielle Lewis and Barry Finkel. Our producers are Ahmed Ali Akbar and Ben Goldberg. Our managing producer is Bria Mariette. Darby Maloney is our editor. Engineering and mixing by Hannes Brown. Music by Carly Bond with additional music provided by Apple. I'm Jason Concepcion. Thanks for listening. Let's promise to always attend each other's executions. 